Thank you, Jamie. Special welcome to any of you tuning in to our Wallace service. You consider yourself a visitor, not a regular part of our church community. On behalf of our church family, though you cannot see them, I welcome you. We're so grateful for your presence with us. I know many of you are desiring that today uh, the Lord would give balm to your soul, comfort, very much as Jamie just prayed for us. And let's trust that this uh, word, I prepared it before the events of this week, let's just trust that this word in particular in the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus loving you in the midst of this chaos, um, he, will, he will bless you and meet you according to your expectation. This is our great and gracious King. So may his word have that particular effect for us this morning. It is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. We started this uh, text last week and looked at a couple of verses. Now we'll finish it, move on into chapter uh, for verse 7 next week, but here's our text for this morning, asking that the Lord would make it a particular hope and encouragement, comfort to you. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. A long time ago, I was in my first job as a faculty member at the University of Virginia. I had an acquaintance who was also the dean of one of the colleges, and we were speaking. And I was pretty excited about sort of my newly revived heart and my Christian faith. And after a couple minutes, she interrupted me and said, Mike, you are taking this Christianity thing much too seriously. Now, allowing that fanatics sometimes aren't aware of how they themselves are coming across. That statement raises a very interesting question. Is there anything that's impossible to take too seriously? Like staying awake while you're driving? Can't they can't take that too seriously? The Apostle Peter is writing to followers of Jesus who are captivated by him. They possess a deep faith in Jesus, and they were taking it very, very seriously. Look at how he describes that faith in chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And believe in him and rejoice with joy 
that is inexpressible and full of glory. That faith taken by these new converts extremely seriously was producing inexpressible joy. But what's the telltale evidence that they're taking Jesus more serious than anything else? It's what it was costing them. That's how you know what's important to you, how much you're willing to pay to keep it. And these Christians were paying a price of persecution. They were being maligned, slandered, reviled, wrongly accused. In fact, for about 300 years, this is the pattern where Christianity existed in the world. Waves of persecution, some people losing property, even life. And this persecution continues to this day in too many parts of this world. And Peter is saying that those who follow Jesus experience at least two tensions, one internally, we looked at this last week, we struggle with indwelling sin. Sin says, my will, not God's. My pleasures, not God's. And we explored that last week. That's an internal tension that comes with the territory of taking Jesus seriously. There's an external tension, and that is with those who don't share your same passion about Jesus Christ. The relational tension with those who don't have your, common, your, your deepest loyalty in common with them. It could be a friend, a coach, a neighbor. It could be someone in your family, a college roommate, a local merchant. And here's the question. This is the question framing our examination of this text. How do you maintain fidelity to Jesus, your greatest love, in this relational conflict? It's inevitable that those who take Jesus seriously will have this kind of tension in their relationships. How do you do that? Peter is saying you need to understand the nature of the tension and the price of the tension. That's what the text is about. So number one, how do you maintain fidelity to your deepest love, Jesus, without compromising? He's the most serious thing you could ever take in the world. How do you do that? Number one, understand the nature of the tension. So you can imagine the situation Peter's describing. His readers have significant relationships in their lives that have been rocked because they've changed. Their friends haven't. And their friends are surprised. They think they're strange and they begin to malign them. Remember earlier in 1 Peter that he's likely writing largely to a Gentile audience, folks who were converted out of a lifestyle of self-rule and self-indulgent, described in verse 3 this way, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And he's alluded to this in chapter 1, verse 14. He exhorts them, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And a couple verses later, chapter 1, 18, knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers. Dad did it, granddad did it, great-granddad did it. They lived lives of self-rule, self-indulgence. 
and in ignorance of the truth, they pursued whatever pleasure suited them. Party hardy. And then these readers were found by Jesus. And it stopped. See, when the gospel comes to a human heart, the heart changes. The Spirit gives you a new nature, and with that new nature come new desires, new interests, new values, a new way of thinking, a new priorities, a new course to live. He calls it in the text, the will of God. And believers don't live this perfectly, but their lives change substantially. And at the heart of this is a liberating, fundamental conviction. God made me. God knows what's best for me. I will trust his ways. You see examples of changed lives in the scripture. I'll just pull one out for you. A tax collector named Zacchaeus. Jesus finds him and changes him. He was a thief. He charged people way more than they needed to pay for their taxes. What does he do? He pays everybody back what he stole from them, and he starts charging the right amount. Fast forward in church history, England. John Newton, he's the captain of a ship that went and got slaves. He completely abandoned that life. He's new in Christ. He couldn't keep living that way. And you, you're different some of you have become much better stewards of your money. Some of you now speak differently because of your new heart. You don't find crude jokes so funny. Some of you ladies, you don't dress provocatively. You know that's a stumbling block for your brothers. You've changed. God's will has become desirable, and correspondingly, the desires you formerly indulged in with your unbelieving friends, less so. And they notice, they think it's shocking, and they malign you. Literally, the word is blaspheme you. They want to ruin your reputation. And so verse 4 says, with respect to this, this change, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, perhaps passively, you get the cold shoulder, they stop calling, they unfriend you on Facebook. You have a red nose, so you don't get to play in any reindeer games. Or perhaps aggressively. Mike, you're taking this Christianity thing too seriously. Why did you stop partying? Why did you stop sleeping around? Come on, everybody's doing it. What's wrong with you, goody two-shoes? You're no fun anymore, traitor. Here's the modern version of this. Mike, you have become so judgmental. What gives you the right to tell me what happiness is for me? See, what makes your way, Mike, better than mine? Beloved, you know this is the thinking of your neighbors, your coworkers, a lot of people in your sphere of influence. You are so judgmental as a Christian. So I'd like to invite you to eavesdrop with me on a conversation I might have with a friend or a neighbor who believes that because I'm a Bible-believing Christian, I can't take Jesus Christ too seriously. I believe there are absolute standards and absolute morality in a book that's absolutely true. 
this person thinks I'm judgmental, I'm forcing religion down their throat, and I can't tell them what happiness should be for them. I'm gonna invite you in on a couple questions I would have for that person. For example, I would say, is this a little ironic? You feel like I'm judging you, but aren't you judging me? Second question, is this respectful? I thought friends appreciated one another's differences and that you might respect me enough to value my newfound love, or is it that you allowed me in your world so long as I had nothing negative to say about it? Third question, is this hypocrisy? You want me to accept your lifestyle, but you won't accept my lifestyle. Fourth question, is this inconsistency? You say that no one has the right to tell you how to live. Come on, admit it. People really don't live that way when it comes to pass. Right? You can't be the only one that decides what's right and wrong for you. Well, what if my way of finding happiness was to hurt you, to kill you, to rape, to destroy things? That doesn't work. <laughs> if everyone's way of finding happiness was running every step light they came, stop light they came to, we'd all be in danger. Nobody really lives this way. Somebody has to make some rules. <laughs> Or we'd have anarchy. I believe God's rules promote human flourishing better than any others. And, and the last question I would ask, my friend, can your view, all morals are relative, no one has the right to tell me what happiness is for me, I'm judgmental for having a position of absolute mor morality. My question would be, can this stand up to the pressure of scrutiny in other words, I'd like to put this idea of moral or religious relativism under a microscope. I'd like to scrutinize it, this idea that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. And I, I know you earnestly believe that. I'm not questioning your sincerity. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Let me, let me ask, if you really believe that, haven't you forgotten that it's possible, possible to be sincerely mistaken? Terrorists, Hitler, they're sincere, but gravely evil. If you believe no one can tell you what happiness is for you, and I'm, I'm sort of being dogmatic and absolutist in my view, do you, if you really believe that, what hope is, that? is there for people who struggle to be sincere? They just find duplicity in their souls a lot. If you really believe that, haven't you become as dogmatic as those who believe in absolute? See, to claim there are no moral absolute is an absolute statement about morality. If you really believed that, doesn't that make you omniscient? You know for certain that all values and morals are relative? How did you arrive at that absolute certainty <laughs> that all things are relative. If you really believe that, can you be tolerant of intolerant people, kind of like me, in the name of tolerance? I don't have a great tolerance for falsehood. I actually love truth. Can you be tolerant of me <laughs> in the name of tolerance?
So why is your position more privileged than mine? These are the questions I would ask. And finally, if you really believe that, how do you make any value judgments about anything? Because where there are only absolute, uh, where there's only uh, relative values and maybe a secular worldview, you have nothing more than pure personal preference. You think one thing's wrong, I think this is wrong. You think one thing's right, I think this is wrong. You really never got away from pure preference, and therefore you could never morally condemn anything because they're just pursuing happiness on their own terms. You can never make a moral condemnation given the way you think. And there'll never be justice in the end. What about people who suffer unjustly if there's no ultimately no lawgiver, no judge? Too bad for them. So those are some questions that I would ask. I hope that doesn't sound flippant. But I have some, seer, I have some sincere concerns about that way of thinking. We can talk later about that. The second thing Peter helps you do to maintain fidelity to your truest love, Jesus, in the midst of relational conflict is, he says, I want you to understand the price of the tension. And he gives us three reasons why we should be willing to pay any price to stay true to our deepest love, Jesus. First, remember what sin brought you. Verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That last phrase, lawless idolatry, may be Peter tipping his hand that some of these things were involved in the sensual, false worship of some of the religious cults of their time, perhaps. But Peter is saying what? Your experience of a self-directed, self-indulgent lifestyle and the misery that came with it, that should be enough to conclude no more of that. Sin was a terrible taskmaster. So as you look back on the things you did for self-glory rather than God's, that's enough. In 1964, I vividly remember this, I was eight years old, the Surgeon General came out with his, his uh, findings that smoking was hazardous to your health. My mother immediately stopped smoking. Apparently, she'd seen the pictures of how the tar from cigarettes coated the lungs inside the body of a smoker. She immediately stopped. She concluded, the time past is sufficient for coating my lungs with tar by smoking. When you indulge in sin, you're coating your heart with tar. And consequently, precious things, you become dull to those. For example, sin detracts, makes you dull from coats with tar, your appetite for what is good, your sense of the pleasure of God, your sensitivity to the needs of others. It becomes dull, coated with tar. Your taste for moral glory, coated with tar. What is true heart beauty, coated with tar? Your willingness to self-sacrifice, something we all think, you don't have to be religious to admire that on others, gets coated with tar by self-indulgence. 
Paul put it this way in Romans 6, 21. That's why Jamie read it earlier. He raises the question, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you're now ashamed? Jesus is my true love. I look back, I was doing things I'm ashamed of now. They didn't comport with his beauty. What, he said, what benefit were you deriving from those things? What was the benefit? What did self-indulgence get you? Slavery. Sin never says enough. Sin says more, more, more. And you left yourself open to all manner of danger. Think about it. You treated people as objects. You couldn't think clearly. You squandered resources, time, money, energy, opportunities. You may have hurt your body. Sin always hurts your soul. It usually hurts relationships. And worst of all, sin Worst of all, sin offends God. Worst of all. See, now that Jesus is your true love, you see that is the crime of highest proportion. It offends God. So Peter says, Remember what sin brought you. Secondly, remember what sin brings. All people, verse 5, they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Those friends whose lifestyle is self-indulgent, self-rule, party-hardy, right? Eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow, tomorrow you die. When you die tomorrow, there's a judgment. You don't die and just expire you're absolutely accountable before God for the way you lived. Do you think killers, rapists, thieves would do what they do if they believed in an eternal hell? Of course not. One of my favorite theologians, a man named Jonathan Edwards, said, in hell, every person will have wished they sinned less. So what's the evidence you love Jesus? You wish you sinned less. More love to him, less love to self. And finally, Peter says, remember where Christians are going. Verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way men, people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So apparently, some in the Christian community have died. They have physically expired. Their faith persevered them to the end. They did not give in to a lifestyle of sensuality or relativism. They responded to the gospel, and they died. Peter is saying... Let every physical death you hear about remind you we die because of Adam's sin. We die because we've sinned, though judged in the flesh the way people are. If I die before Jesus comes again, it is a judgment in my flesh because of sin. It's let every death remind you that we deserve condemnation. We deserve, as a penalty for sin, eternal agony apart from God. 
So the gospel doesn't save me from physical death. It does save me from spiritual death. And so those who trust Christ, he says, live in the spirit the way God does. (laughs) That's our hope, (laughs) to be eternally in unspeakable joy, (laughs) awaiting the resurrection of our bodies, as we already confessed earlier in the service. So what is Peter saying? Whatever your faith costs you now will be worth all the glory of being with God forever in paradise. Paul's version, Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed. He suffered a ton it's so unworthy. I can't even compare it to the glory to be revealed. This is why Jesus asks you and me this question. What does it profit a person to gain the whole world? Gain the whole world. Do whatever you want to do with as much as you want to do, however you want to do it. Self-rule, self-indulgence on steroids. What does it profit you to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? Do you see how valuable your soul is. If you're giving it over to self-indulgence, you don't understand how valuable your soul is. What is the price, according to the scriptures, of a human soul? We only know it by looking at the cross. So precious to God, our human souls, that he gave his son to die for the redemption of those souls on Christ's hideous, painful, shameful, bloody cross. He was judged in the flesh for you. He removed the curse of sin. This is exactly what Peter has written at the end of chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore in his body our sins on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you are healed. There is hope for people who want deliverance from the penalty of self-indulgence and from the power of indwelling sin. Christ bearing your sins in his body on the cross. No matter how you've lived, making your own rules or trying to obey all the good rules, you need a savior. Because you'll never reach the perfection God requires for his presence. It is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. This is how Peter puts it at the end of chapter 3. Verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins. You trust him? All the penalty for your sins was paid by Christ on his cross. He suffered once for sins. You will never suffer eternally for those sins. Christ did. He also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. You're the unrighteous. He's the perfect man. He takes the place of sinners on the cross, the righteous Christ, in order to give you his righteousness as a gift that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. God the Father saying, that offering as a sacrifice for sins, I accept, and he rose Jesus from the dead. That is your future as you trust in him. Only Jesus can bring us to God. Only Jesus has the righteousness to make you perfect. 
in the Father's eyes. Only Jesus' death can cleanse you of all your sin. He can bring you, who are you trusting today to bring you to God? Yourself? Wake up. You don't come close to having what it takes. Is there any religious figure you know of who said, I, me alone, qualify to bring you to the presence of God, make you acceptable for paradise? Only Jesus Christ claimed it. Only Jesus Christ accomplished it. So now you know the measure of a true repentance. It's what you love. Because he loved you and did that for you, you love him more than yourself. Because you see more and more he is infinitely more glorious than yourself. Think then, never tire of thinking down, putting your heart and mind down on the fact that Jesus loves the unlovely. Jesus alone cleanses the indelible stain of sin. He can remove it. Jesus repairs the irreparable. Jesus finds the lost. Jesus sets the prisoners free. Jesus gathers the outcast. Call on his name. Certain he'll set that love on you. And if you set that love on you, there's nothing, nothing more important. You couldn't possibly take too seriously that love. And you know it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in your infinite compassion and mercy, look upon us and in love change us. If we've never given our heart to you, come now as Lord, take it. If we have, make yourself more and more our heart's ravishing beauty, our first love for your glory. Amen.